Good evening and welcome to our service tonight. If you have your Bible, you may want to be opening up to the book of Judges, chapter number 10. Judges, chapter number 10. We'll be spending our time there. And we do extend our sympathy to the uh, James Brown family and uh, all of those who are involved with that. Let me just say, it's in our bulletin this morning as well, but if you would like to receive a text message from us, uh, from here at the church, it'll actually have my number attached to it, but if you would like to receive a text message and you're not already receiving one from me, then please send me a text and I'll be glad to add you to our list, make sure that you get on that list, and if you'd like to be removed from it, then uh, send me a text, say stop, and I'll know to take your name off of the, the text list. I'm sure that there may still be some out there who have a limited number of texts and uh, only get that, and so... Uh, Either way, whatever we need to do, we'll be glad to adjust that. In the book of Judges, chapter 10, let's spend some time tonight talking about this judge. I believe he's the eighth one that we're going to be looking at. Beginning in verse 3 and going through verse number 5, the Bible says, After him, that is, after the one we just studied a couple of weeks ago, after Tola, after him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. You know, sometimes it just makes me scratch my head why God chose to include some of the details that he chooses to include. When we think about Jair, we know some things about him. As we look at him here in the scriptures, we know that he was a judge in Israel. We understand that. That's easy for us to see. We may also note that there are some other Jairs that are mentioned in the scripture. If you go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 32, verses 33 through 42, we read about a man by the name of Jair who lived during the time of Moses. And he evidently was a, uh, an ancestor, if you will, of the man that we're talking about tonight. It was this man, Jair, who lived during the time of Moses, who conquered the land of Gilead, that uh, this particular judge where he lives. And so we can go back, you know, we can read about him, not only in the book of Numbers, he's mentioned again, I think it's in the book of Deuteronomy, but it's the same, same uh, man who's mentioned there. And so we know of him, we also know of another man by the name of Jair, we may not have really thought about him, may not have thought about his name, may have even not thought him to be important, but he lived a long time after this Jair, when we go all the way to the Babylonian captivity, we read about a Jair who had a son by the name of Mordecai. And we'll probably recognize the name Mordecai because he was the relative of Esther who raised her. And so when we're, when we're looking, we're, we're seeing this name Jair, but this particular one lived at this time, during the time of the judges, and so we know that, and we know that he was a judge. Not only do we know about this Jair, that he was a judge, but we know that he was a Gileadite. He was from the city or the region of Gilead. We also know that that's in the land that was given to the tribe of Manasseh. We know also that that's going to be on the eastern side of the Jordan River. 
we know that there were two and a half tribes who decided that they wanted to stay not in the promised land, but on the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, Reuben Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, and he himself is over here on the eastern side because the Bible says that he is a Gileadite or he is from that particular region. We also know that because we know that uh, the sons, as they are mentioned here, that they have the cities called Havath-Jair. And we know all the way from that passage in Numbers that they were on that side of the Jordan River. It was in a portion of the land that had belonged to the king Sion and Og. And so as we look at it, we, we understand, we, we know that, we have that information that is given to us here. We know that he judged Israel for 22 years. That's, you know, a pretty important thing to know that he, he, had, he spent some time as the leader, as the judge who was there. We also know that he had 30 sons. We know that his sons were the leaders of these 30 cities that, that again, are called Havath-Jair, literally saying they are the villages of Jair. And again, they were named after the ancestor of this Jair who lived during the time of Moses. We know all of these things about them, but we also know that his sons rode donkeys. Thirty sons, and they rode donkeys. Now right here is where the head-scratching part comes in. Why would God choose to take up it may be a short space in his Bible, but it is still space in his word. Why would God in his infinite knowledge choose to give that little detail to us? You see, why did God deem it necessary for us to know that part? He could have said that there was a man named Jair who judged Israel for 22 years he had 30 sons, and we'd have said, man, he had a big family. And after the 22 years, he died and he was buried at Kaman. He, he could have told us all of that. He did tell us all of that, but he throws in another detail. You see, we have to ask why God does some things. Sometimes he doesn't explain for us, as the case is here. But does it occur to us that what he tells us here about Jair and his son is a little bit of tid, uh, a tidbit of information telling us about the man and the time at which he was judging. You say, well, how in the world could the fact that he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys tell us anything about the time in which he lived? Well, we'll talk about that tonight, or at least think about it. As we start our discussion of it, we need to ask the question, is he saying that Jair is a wealthy man? He has 30 sons, certainly he has a big family, and that doesn't necessarily say that he was wealthy. There are poor families who have a lot of, uh, of children, but he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. I think the fact that he had 30 sons may say something about that. It may indicate something about wealth when we look at some of the other passages in the Bible that talk about donkeys. 
And that's what we want to do for just a moment or so. Let's take time to look at Job chapter 1 at verse number 3. The Bible says in Job chapter 1 at verse 3, speaking about Job, said he had 7,000 sheep, he had 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and then God chose to say he had 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He had 500 female donkeys, and that's attached in Scripture to the fact that he is a wealthy man. He is the greatest of all the people of the East. And so, you know, when we look at it, we begin, you know, at least to let stuff, something start rattling, rattling around in our head. Is it saying that he's a wealthy man? When we go to the end of the book of Job, chapter 42, at verse number 12, the Bible says in the latter days of Job, he had more than the beginning, and that the, uh, he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Now, a lot of times, from our perspective, we may think a person who owns a donkey is a relatively poor person. But God says, hey, this is attached to wealth. It's attached to that when it comes to Job, probably one of the first books of the Bible, the Old Testament. And so, you know, along with all the other things, didn't have horses mentioned, or any, you know, he had the sheep and so forth, but he had donkeys. He had donkeys. Not only does it say something about Job, but what about Abraham? When Pharaoh, when Abraham, if you remember the story of Pharaoh going down to Egypt and getting into trouble, if you will, with Pharaoh because of, of Sarah, Sarai, the Bible says that Pharaoh had favor on Abraham for her sake. Okay? And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, watch this, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Pharaoh gave Abram a gift, or probably a bunch of gifts as we look at it here. But among those gifts are donkeys, both female and male donkeys that are mentioned there. But what does God say about Abraham later on through the servant of Abraham as he is sent to find a wife for his son Isaac? In Genesis 24, verse 35, here's what he tells his relatives when he goes to find uh, Rebekah. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. You know, sort of the same thing that was said about Job. He has become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and male servants and female servants and camels and donkeys. One of the things that God himself enriched Abraham with is what we're talking about tonight. Donkeys. And so again, it's mentioned there, but we're not finished yet. What about what is said in Genesis 30, verse 43? We go on from Abraham now to Jacob. 
He says, Thus the man, that's Jacob, increased greatly and had large flocks and female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. And so again, he, he specifies that here's a rich man. He's been increased greatly by God who has donkeys. And when Jacob is meeting his brother Esau, the Bible says Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Jacob felt it was necessary that his brother, who he thought was still angry with him and wanted to kill him and thought he may be coming home to, to try to take advantage of the family property again because he had been given the birthright, he felt it necessary to tell him, I've got donkeys, along with all the other things that I have. And not only does he do that, but keep on there in Genesis 32, drop on down to verses 13 through 15. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. You know, it sort of makes me wonder, as I look at that and I begin to think, are the donkeys some of the most valuable animals that they possessed? They're mentioned a lot of times. And notice he had a whole bunch of goats and a whole bunch of sheep and he had several camels that he gave him and cows, but lesser donkeys. Are they some of the most valuable that he had? And so you begin to think about that. But then here's another passage all the way back in the book of Judges. Chapter 5 at verse number 10 in the song that Deborah sang after God had delivered the, the people by her hand. She said, tell of it. Who do you want to tell it? I want the people who are riding the white donkeys on the rich carpets. And, notice the word and, I bolded it and underlined it and put it in italics for purpose. And you who walk by the way. Seems what Deborah does is distinguishes two different classes of people. Those who are rich, we'd say it today, you know, you've got the Cadillac to ride in, and you folks who are walking. The ones who ride the white donkeys, who have the nice saddles on them, and you poor folks who walk. You see, it, when we start thinking about the donkeys in the Bible, they're more than just a basketball 
gain. It seems that wealth, at least in part, was measured by how many donkeys a person had. And so we have to ask the question, is God telling us in Judges chapter 10, when he speaks about the 30 sons riding 30 donkeys, that this man was a quite wealthy man? Is that one of the things that he is getting across to us? And I think that may well be a valid point for us to consider. God chose to put that in there for a purpose. What is his purpose? One of his purposes may be that it is to tell us that this Tola, I mean rather this uh, Jair, about whom hardly anything is said, except that he was a judge who judged Israel for 22 years, that he was a wealthy man. But you know what? I'm convinced that that's probably not all there is. Is there more significance to the donkeys than just that? I think to answer that question, we probably first need to establish what kind of donkeys we're talking about. What do you mean by donkeys? Well, go back to that passage in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob, we're being told about Jacob's livestock, all, of, all that he had. Did you notice that there is a distinction that is made? That he had X number of male and X number of female servants and donkeys? There's a distinction, a different word for the female donkeys, Adonot, than there is for the male donkeys, Iyarim. When we're looking at what is found here in the book of Judges, chapter 10, it's not just a donkey that's mentioned, it is a male donkey that's mentioned. It's the Iyarim that is mentioned. But even more than that, as we're looking at the Iyarim here, there's another passage that uses this, this terminology that helps us even to better understand what kind of donkey we're talking about. Not just a male donkey, but what about what is said in the book of Zechariah chapter 9 at verse number 9? There the Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? The word donkey there, where it says mounted on a donkey, that's the general word for donkey. It may be males, it may be females. That's the general word for donkey. But he says about this passage that the king is coming mounted on a donkey on a colt. That's our word that we're looking at back over here in the book of Judges, chapter 10. A colt. And so what we <coughs> glean from that, he's riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
we're not just looking at a male donkey, we're looking at a young male donkey. Okay? And so, as we look at it, we can understand, we can grasp that. That's pretty easy from Scripture to catch and to see. But did you notice that Zechariah reference? The king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If that rings a bell with you, it may be because you studied the book of Zechariah, or it may be because you studied the book of Matthew. Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What took place? Is my question. What took place that fulfilled what Zechariah said back in Zechariah 9, verse 9? What happened when Jesus sent his disciples to find the colt, the foal of a donkey, and he went riding into Jerusalem on that colt? You see, the prophecy back in Zechariah is about Jesus that he is going riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Not just any donkey, on a colt, one upon which no man, if you remember, had ever ridden. And Jesus goes riding into town on him. We sometimes refer to that as the triumphal entry. When Jesus, on the Sunday before his crucifixion, went into Jerusalem and people were taking their clothes and their, the branches and they were laying them on the street and they were crying out praise to Jesus, shouting Hosanna. But you know what? It's interesting also to note that when these people were doing that, what they were saying. Did you notice they're not saying, why well, here comes this poor foolish guy Riding on a donkey. But rather what they said, what they recognized right off the bat, is here comes this man, Jesus, who is the king of Israel. It didn't surprise these people that a king would be riding a donkey. Now, that could go back to our first point when we're talking about donkeys. They were a sign of wealth. But as we think about it, as best I can determine, ancient Eastern kings were accustomed to riding donkeys. I was first introduced to this thought in commentary, and I said, ah, I never heard that before. Began to do some research. And there's a lot of research that has been done 
and is out there that talked about those kings in that area in that time riding donkeys. And so it wasn't something that was out of the question. We, we sometimes think, even though Zechariah says that he's humble as he comes, they still recognized him as a king. That's the point. But you know what? As we think about it, we generally think about a king coming and riding on a big stallion of some kind, don't we? A big powerful horse. And that's the way he would be coming in and he would be decorated and the horse would have all kind of war things on. War things on? It seems that the kings, the eastern kings, rode donkeys in times of peace. When they came in peace. And they rode horses when they came in war. Go back to Zechariah chapter 9. Look at the very next verse, verse number 10. When he speaks about, prophesies about Christ riding into Jerusalem on the colt, the young donkey, how was Jesus coming? Cut off the chariot. What do you use chariots for? Cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. What are all of those things for? Making war. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. When Jesus came, how did he come? He came bringing peace. That was a prophecy that was to be made. When we think about the peace that Jesus brought... We're reminded of passages such as the one in the book of Isaiah chapter 9 at verse number 6, aren't we? Or at least we should be. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government, government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The prince there representing his kingship. Prince of peace. What kind of peace did Jesus bring? Jesus came and he was intending, he did, did, does, bring peace outwardly. What do you mean by that? 
When you go to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament and you begin reading in passages such as uh, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2, when Jesus came and he died on the cross, what did he do between Jew and Gentile? He didn't change every attitude, but what did he do in God's sight and man's sight? He brought peace. Matter of fact, as you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes and says, He himself is our peace who has made us both one, us who? Jews and Gentiles. Us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Watch this. So making peace. Just because Jesus died, did that, did that mean that the Jews and the Gentiles automatically everything, they just hugged and everything was fine with them? <laughs> no, not if you've read the book of Acts. Uh, they had some pretty good battles within the church, didn't they? Jews kept saying, hey, these Gentile folks that Paul's bringing in here, they're going to have to act more like Jews. They're going to be saved. And the answer keep, keeps coming back, no, they're not. They're going to have to act like Christians. And Paul, or rather Peter and uh, the others, Paul, they make it clear that you can't bind on them the things that were bound on the Jewish nation. He broke down the hostility between those two nations. You know, what if every nation on earth decided to live like Christians? What if the guy over in North Korea decided after reading the Bible, you know, that's the truth. I want to be a Christian. And I am repenting of everything that I've done and I want to live as a Christian. In our own nation, our leaders said, you know what? If a man like that can be converted, so can we. We'll be Christians too. What would result? We'd start treating each other like brothers and sisters in Christ, wouldn't we? Same's true if you go to the Middle East or anywhere. When we act like Christians, we act like the head because we are the body and our head is the prince of peace. He brings it outwardly. Not only to nations, but if you go and again, you look at other uh, passages there as far as the outwardly is concerned, uh, he sought to bring peace among brethren. Romans 14 verse 19, So then let us pursue peace, or pursue what makes for peace, and for mutual upbuilding. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't always get along, do we? As brothers and sisters in Christ. You ever heard of a church argument? Folks started fussing? Well, that's not because Jesus didn't bring peace. It's because somebody quit acting like him. Right? Brings peace outwardly. And Paul would write in Romans chapter 12 at verse 18, If possible, 
so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The peace of God, peace of Christ, takes shape outwardly, but it also takes shape inwardly. When we think about the peace of Christ, the peace that we find in Him, John 12, verse, or 14, rather, verse 27, Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. He's talking to His apostles. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What kind of peace is He talking about there? The peace that comforts the heart. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's really no wonder that people who are not Christians don't understand the peace that a person can have in Christ. To die with heaven on our mind, to know that there's something else, even if this life doesn't work out like we think it should, there's something a whole lot better. They don't understand that. It's no wonder because Paul wrote about the peace that surpasses all understanding that comforts our hearts. And so we have the peace that Jesus brings inwardly, but we also have the peace that Jesus brings upwardly. What do we mean by that? Peace between God and man. Back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 16 through 18 now. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That word reconcile means to make peace or to make friends again. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's peace with God. What about Romans chapter 5 at verse number 1? Same apostle writing, but in this passage, notice what he says. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, Paul says we've got something. What do we have? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to harp on that tonight. We as Christians have heard that. Many, many times. But that king who came riding on what? A donkey. Brought peace. For you and me. Now back to our text. All the way back in Judges chapter 10. When the writer of the book of Judges writes about Jair, where does he say anything 
about a war. Or an invader that happened so many times in the history of Israel being driven out. Where does he say anything about that? All he says about Jair is that he was a judge in Israel, he was a Gileadite, he had 30 sons who rode donkeys. And Jair died, was buried. Where in that is there anything about him having to drive out an invading nation? I don't see anything, do you? And so did Jair, if we go the right direction, did Jair judge Israel during a time of relative peace? His sons riding donkeys? not war horses. His family itself, seemingly at peace with those who are around. Was he able to do that? Say, well, why did he need to be a judge of Israel if that was the case? Didn't they, weren't they deliverers? Well, not necessarily. When we go a little bit later on in the book of Judges, chapter 12, Abdon is said to have 40 sons and 30 grandsons, and they rode on 70 donkeys. And that's basically all we know about Abdon. He had sons and grandsons who rode on donkeys. Did Jair judge in righteousness, keeping the people Tola had saved on the right path? Remember, we're not told anything about an invader even with Tola, are we? We talked about that last time. Not told about somebody coming in, and yet we're told that Tola saved Israel. And we raise the question then, what did he save them from? And we made the point then, sometimes what we need to be saved from is ourselves. Was Tola, or rather Jair, able in peacetime to continue what had been started and accomplished during the time of Tola? Keeping the people on the right path. It's interesting that unlike the other judges, as a matter of fact, we'll begin reading in the next part of the book of Judges here, that they went back and they sinned again. But it's not said in this case. He judged Israel for 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys, and he died, was buried. Did he judge in that time of peace, helping people to stay on the right track? Folks, Sometimes all of us need a little encouragement, don't we? To stay on the right track. What's the church about? About a lot of things. But one thing it's about is encouragement. Keeping each other 
on the right track. Maybe we need to be a lot like Jair. I'm not saying we need to go get us a donkey and start riding it around here in Jasper or anything like that. But perhaps we would do well to be like Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called what? The 30 sons riding on donkeys. Well, that's not how it says it is. It, it just says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God in the New Testament. This makes you scratch your head why God chooses to put little tidbits of information in Scripture, doesn't it? Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You can have peace. Peace with God tonight. Your sins washed away, go home and have peace with yourself. Knowing that if this was your last day and you drew your last breath, you could have a home with God. It may take some work getting things straightened out with folks around us. But if we live right and do right, we can have that kind of peace too, can't we? I really would like that kind of life, wouldn't you? That's really what I want. And that's what you can have in Christ. If you're here tonight and you need to respond to the Lord's invitation for whatever reason it may be, why don't you come right now? It's together we stand as we sing. I nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus For my cleansing this my plea Nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh, precious is the flow That makes me white as snow No But the blood of Jesus, nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus, oh precious 
in prayer. To Canaan's land I'm on my way where the soul never dies. My darkest night will turn to day where the soul never dies. No sad farewells, no tears. Thank you for this time that we have to gather here. We pray as we get ready to leave this place that we will do so with a 